Welcome to the What Even Is podcast, where we interview experts about different topics that makes us wonder, what even is that? Or what even is that like? I'm your host, Donna Trunk. Let's get started. Today, we're answering what even are Native American reservations with our guest who earned his PhD in American culture at the University of Michigan and is the director of the OSU Newark Earthworks Center, is an enrolled citizen of the Pokagon Band of Potawatomi Indians, and serves as a member of his tribe's Traditions and Reparations Committee, Dr. John Lau. My name is John Lau. I'm an associate professor at the Ohio State University. I teach at the Newark campus. I'm also director of the Newark Earthworks Center, and I am a proud citizen of the Pokagon Band of Potawatomi Indians. Uh, the first question you asked was, uh, what are American Indian reservations? Reservations are holdovers uh, from the American expansion across the continent of what we now call the United States. Uh, Indians were, their land was taken away from them and they were congregated onto small parcels of land, sometimes within their ancestral lands. More often, they were removed to unhospitable places uh, where Indians, we were expected to die off within a generation or two and the settler colonists would take the rest of the continent. The irony is that uh, we didn't uh, all die off. We survived and uh, we're still here today. So the intention was for you guys to basically like die out. That was the intention of them? Yeah, the intention and the expectation. So the master narrative was that Indians don't really deserve the land. They don't use the land like white people do. So we're going to take the land from them. And uh, so we'll put them on plots of land that nobody else wants most commonly. And uh, so we'll congregate them under those small parcels. Most uh, sovereign American Indian nations today uh, have a reservation. Not all of them, but many of them do. I would suspect probably about estimating about 500 of the 572 American Indian nations within the United States have reservations. Oh, that's kind of messed up, though. That uh, Okay, like, I didn't realize that was, like, the intention. I thought it was like, oh, because we took, a, we took so much land, we're giving you some. But it was more like, oh, so we're just going to place you here just so you guys can die out. That's yeah, kind of messed up. Yeah, beginning with uh, George Washington, you know, he started a program uh, called uh, Expansion with Honor. You know, the, the United States was supposed to be this beacon of liberty and freedom and fair dealing, which is ironic also because America was founded on the original sins of slavery and Indian land taking, free labor, free land. But nonetheless, George Washington knew that the rest of the world was watching. Could this new republic really be uh, honorable in the way that it dealt with its people within its borders? And so they, rather than exterminating us outright, which has been a part of settler colonialism throughout history around the rest of the world, they decided to move us onto small, concentrated parcels of land. And so, yeah. It's not fair, and it's not nice, but it's uh, not really taught in history books. Yeah, for sure. So the reservations, are they technically still part of the U.S. or no? Yes. The United States Supreme Court, in a series of decisions called the Marshall Trilogy, Justice Marshall ruled that we were semi-sovereign dependent nations. What that means is, is a fancy way of saying that we are 
upon and cannot have foreign relations with any other country. We're dependent upon the U.S. government, but we can manage our internal affairs to some degree and that we are on some kind of equal footing with the states. The states within which we are located can't tell us what to do. Only the federal government can tell us what to do, which they often tell us what to do. Although things have improved over the last three or four decades, but uh, we've always been you know, sort of cast as second-class citizens. Mm. Can you guys vote? Sure, yeah. So I have a dual citizenship, or I guess a tri-citizenship. Uh, you know, I'm a citizen of the Pokagon Band of Potawatomi Indian Nation. I'm also a citizen of the state of Indiana, and I'm also a citizen of the United States, and I can vote in the elections for the governments for all three of those. Okay, and that's the same for, like, any reservation. Like, if it was yeah. a reservation in Oklahoma, they're tri-citizenship people. Well, well, interestingly enough, the federal government has played around a lot. And so, yeah, there's a lot of Indians in Oklahoma. So it's understandable that you would mention Oklahoma as an example. However, the United States in the early 1900s dissolved all the reservations in Oklahoma. So there are tribal nations. They don't have reservations, but there are still tribal nations. They just have individual parcels of land rather than a national boundary. Oh, so then where are these reservations located then? Most of them are west of the Mississippi because that's where Indians were originally removed from east of the Mississippi to west of the Mississippi uh, after the 1830 passage of the Indian Removal Act, which was clearly uh, ethnic cleansing. But there's reservations in New York, also reservations in Connecticut, Maine, Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota. But for instance, where I live and teach now, which was originally an epicenter of, you know, a big location of Indian peoples in the Ohio River Valley. Lots of resources, great soil, great climate. There are no Indian reservations in Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Ohio, Indiana, or Illinois, because all the Indians were removed from there during the 1830s and 1840s. Mm, why did they dissolve the ones in Oklahoma? Once oil was discovered, the land was too valuable to let Indians have it. And so what they would do is they would split the reservations up and make it available for white settlement, you know, white homesteading, white businesses to buy the lands. And so they wanted to split up those land holdings. Oh, that's so messed up. Okay, okay. But then, like, do reservations get federal money? Like, if you guys, like, need help or something, is there federal money allocated to, like, reservations? Well, in theory, there's money allocated not so much for the reservation because that's just a place. It's more accurate to say is or as is money allocated to tribal nations, right? You know, so even tribal nations like in Oklahoma still exist as semi-sovereign dependent tribal nations. And uh, so, yes, the short answer is tribal nations get a little federal funding, not much, but what has helped a lot in the last couple of decades since 
the 1980s has been the economic development of Indian gaming. And mm-hmm. for those tribes that uh, open up casinos, uh, they have cash flow now. And I know for my nation, the Pokagon Potawatomi, that's been a huge help is uh, the casinos. That's what allows us to rebuild our nation, to provide services to our elders and our youth, to provide housing, health care, education is through uh, the profits of casino gaming. Oh, that's like super interesting. So then was it just like one nation started that and then other people followed or how did Yeah, it uh, started with the Florida Seminole were the first ones who were doing it late 70s and nobody was putting a stop to it. You know, they just were sort of turning a blind eye to it, so to speak. And then the Cabazon Band of Mission Indians in California opened up, I think it was 1981, a very large casino and the state of California tried to shut it down. Mm. And the United States Supreme Court then ruled that, well, in every state that has a lottery, since in theory we're supposed to treat tribal nations as equals to states, if a state has gaming, like through lotteries or horse racing or whatever else they do, then they have to allow tribal nations to have their own gaming also. You know, they can't prevent that. So there's uh, Indian casinos in about estimated, again, probably about 35 states. Yeah, because I live in Massachusetts, and I think there's one in Connecticut, Connecticut, maybe. Yeah, the Meshitucket Pequot, yeah. uh, Foxwoods. And then there's also in the Connecticut, Mohegan Sun also is a big casino there. So, And, of course, they draw populations. You wouldn't think, well, Connecticut, how big is Connecticut? But, of course, they draw customers and audience from both Boston and the New York metropolitan areas. And so uh, they're very profitable casinos. Yeah, so then, like, this wouldn't be reservations, right? This would be just tribal nations making money, not reservations themselves, right? Right, exactly. So again, a reservation is really, that's just sort of slang or shorthand to talk about a tribal nation. Really, it's the tribal nation. A reservation is just a parcel of land. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's all it is. It's who's living on that land, who's, you know, got authority over that land, you know, and that would be, again, the tribal nation. So I normally talk more in terms of tribal nations than in terms of reservations. Although, again, it's common to talk about, oh, what's happening on such and such reservation? Well, really, what we're asking about is not what's happening on the land, what's happening in the community, right? Right. What's happening uh, with the people there and with the government there. Yeah. So So then, like, with reservations, then, are there, like, in the actual land, are there a lot of people living there? It certainly depends. Most of the reservations are in places where it's difficult to make a living. They were placed there far from railroads, far from major cities, particularly west of the Mississippi. You know, they're sparsely populated, but generally South Dakota and Kansas and Oklahoma are not each populations anyway, because those are hard lands to live on. And so in addition, until we had casino gaming, there weren't opportunities for Native people to stay on the casino and make a living, or stay on the reservation, I'm sorry, make a living, until casinos opened up. Now there's employment, now there's cash flow, now there's all the other things that go with capitalism, which is banks and housing and food stores and other things that make life worth living, right, or enjoyable or easy. Otherwise, we did have, until the 1980s, a huge drain of the population. In addition, the federal government in the 1950s started a program called relocation 
location where they paid people that gave them one-way bus tickets to large urban metropolitan cities in the United States, like Minneapolis, like Chicago, Cleveland, Denver, Seattle, Portland, Oakland, Phoenix, Albuquerque. And the idea was that, well, we'll just depopulate the reservations and then close them down. But not everybody left. So there's been, you know, since, you know, with the Red Power Movement, which came along with the women's rights movement, the anti-war movement, the gay rights movement, or migrant farm workers movement, all of these movements, civil rights movement, the Red Power Movement was a civil rights movement for Indian people. And it opened the eyes of people to the idea of, well, Indians are still here, and they are Americans, and they ought to have some rights too, you know, so... So it's been sometimes a two steps forward, one step back, but it's been a haltingly improving situation for Native people to live in the United States over the last uh, three or four decades. We'll get back to my interview with Dr. Lau in just a moment. I just wanted to say thank you from the bottom of my heart for supporting and listening to this podcast. And also don't forget to rate, review, and follow this podcast to hear the latest episodes. Okay, we can go back to the episode now. Thank you. Yeah, that's so interesting because I guess, like, we never really hear about it. I feel like unless you're, like, involved in the community or you're close to the community, like, you Mm -hmm. wouldn't really think about these things. So it's interesting for me to hear that, like, first, why reservations were made, well, number one, and also, Mm -hmm. like, the different struggles that you guys have, like, Native Americans have. It's just really interesting that the land is still, like, kind of being tampered with, I guess. Like, oh, Mm -hmm. technically you're supposed to have this land, but then the federal government is just like, oh, just kidding, you guys can't actually have the rights that you actually think you guys can have or something like that. Right. And, you know, the Dakota Access Pipeline was a great example of how life is even today for Native people is that, you know, they're going to have that oil pipeline go uh, near Rapid City, uh, South Dakota, originally. And the white voters of Rapid City voted, no, that's going to spill. Pipelines always break. You know, there's never been a pipeline that didn't break. They're not magical, you know, they're physical things and they're buried underground and they break at the time. And we don't want that oil spilling into our groundwater and destroying our drinking water and our bathing water. So instead, they decided, okay, well, the solution is we'll move the pipeline uh, 50 miles to the east and run it across the Standing Rock Sioux Indian Reservation. What are they going to do about it? You know, and with the past president was very supportive of, yeah, run the pipeline through the Indian Reservation to hell with the Indians. They made it in the land where we're supposed to have freedom of speech, where people always, on the left or right or middle, talk about my right to freedom of speech. They passed a law in South Dakota that is still on the books that if you protest the pipeline, it's a felony. That's unconstitutional. It should be. It should be. It is, you know, but it's on the books and people have been arrested. But fortunately, we got a change in precedence and the President Biden administration stopped the Dakota Access Pipeline and stopped uh, the oil drilling in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, you know, did other things, restored sacred sites that had been opened up for timber, cutting down of trees, uh, drilling of oil, extraction of resources, mining uh, the previous administration 
administration had approved, Biden administration uh, shut that all down. So, you know, fortunately, we came within a cat's whisker of having a whole host of uh, problems among Native peoples in, as you say, reservations, or as I'm, I would say, in Indian country amongst Indian peoples. Yeah. So then, like, okay, so it's kind of confusing for me, only because, like, these lands are, like, allocated, or it's supposed to be specifically for Native American, like, communities and stuff, right? So then, mm-hmm. but you remember how you were talking about Northern California and they were trying to build, like, a casino or something? Mm-hmm. And then they cu- shut it down? Was that, like, on reservation land or was it on, like, state land? Because I thought the states don't have like say on what you guys do on these specific lands. Well, if they tried to shut down, and this is an irony uh, in history that is so in a short podcast difficult to explain, but what the law says is that uh, for us to have a reservation, communal land, we have to hold the land in trust, which means not that the Indians own it, but that we have placed it in trust with the federal government because we're not competent to manage your own affairs. That's been the attitude of the government for the last 200 years. We can only build a casino on land that has been placed in trust with the federal government. If it hasn't been placed in trust with the federal government, then we can't just build it anywhere that we want in the state. We have to go through this whole bureaucratic process of getting the land appropriately titled. But the case I was mentioning with the Cabazon case, that was back when it was 1981. It was unclear whether or not Indians even had the right to do gaming. Even though we were sovereign nations, the state of California wanted to tell us what to do. But the U.S. Supreme Court said, no, California, you have other casinos uh, run by white people. Uh, You have lotteries. You have horse racing where people bet. You have all sorts of things where people are gambling all the time. Therefore, you do not have the right to tell Indians within your state that they can't also do gambling. They also, you know, that they don't have the right to do a gambling operation. So that's what I was trying to make clear is that uh, most states have state lotteries now, right? Most states allow gaming of some sort within their boundaries. And so uh, those 35 states that have Indian casinos have to allow that. There's a whole complicated process to get that done, but ultimately, most commonly, Indians are able to open up casinos in those states that already have some other form of gambling if the Indians do it on this land that is held in trust. That's been the law since the 1980s. Okay, so like technically it's not really like your land, basically. Right. Well, it's our land, but we have to place it in trust with the federal government. So the federal government is like our, we're like in a guardianship. You know, we're not competent to handle our own affairs. So the federal government has to take the land, you know, to manage it in our best interest. That's Mm, the theory. Okay, I see. So then like, okay, because I heard that like um, on these lands, they're like food deserts. Um, sure. Yeah. Can you get into that? Is it just because there's not as much employment or something and jobs? Right. There's uh, there's food deserts in every impoverished area in the United States, right? Whether it's the south side of Chicago, the west side of Detroit, you know, the north side of uh, Columbus, or out on a reservation in the middle of South Dakota, or at the four corners of uh, you know Arizona, Utah, New Mexico, and Colorado. Grocery stores aren't going to open up stores unless there's a population that's going to have money to spend at the stores. And so that, you know, it's a downward spiral, 
right, is that uh, people don't want to live in those areas because they're food deserts. Well, they continue to be food deserts because only poor people live there, but only poor people live there because they're food deserts. But they're food deserts only because poor people live there. And on and on the cycle of poverty goes, right? And so that's a big movement in Indian country on tribal reservations is the food sovereignty movement, this idea that we need to, Indian people need to take control of their access to food and improve that. You know, it's um, in my community, which is very small, it's not hard to do that. But in a tribal nation, for instance, like uh, the Navajo nation, that is as big as Switzerland, you just can't, a couple of grocery stores is not going to solve the problem. Right. The distances out west get to be quite problematic. It's an ongoing problem. Is there like a solution to that? Like is like I don't know if you'd be able to answer it. Yeah, well I don't have any magic cure, but you know, I see hopeful signs. Uh and those hopeful signs is that people are starting to not wait for help, right? Because nobody's going to come and help us. Mm-hmm. Uh they are realizing that if we're going to take care of the health of ourselves, and our elders and our children, it's up to us. It's on us. Nobody else is going to help us. And so there are movements, strong movements that are trying to create access to food as best they can. And it's baby steps, but that's Indian history, right? You know, that we're used to that. You know, hopefully things will continue to improve. And, you know, certainly some of the challenges is that, you know, we want to grow our own food, not just grocery stores, but really not just the table, you know, not just the grocery store, but the field, right? You know, we want to grow our own food. And, but we've been placed in places where South Dakota, Montana, Arizona, New Mexico, places where it's very difficult to grow food. And we've been placed on extremely small parcels of land. And then the water has generally been denied us. You know, the water is, for instance, with the tribes in the Southwest, the Colorado River, you know, once they built Hoover Dam, which with climate change is emptying out the lake underneath, you know, behind the dam. And that's on the national news is that that water that was collected from Hoover Dam, that water was all piped to Los Angeles, to Las Vegas, white communities in Albuquerque and Phoenix. And so the indigenous native peoples living in that area, the water disappeared you now. So and with climate change, now non-native people are going to be struggling with the same situation, right? Because that's what's going to happen out west, is that there's not going to be any water for anybody, not just the Indians, right. but for anybody. But we'd like our land back. We'd like our water back. We'd like our resources back. We only can accomplish that through allies. And that's why I was uh, happy to participate in this podcast, is that we're 1.5% of the population. We don't have political power. We only get things done if we have allies, uh, white, black, and brown. You know, we're looking for allies to do the right thing, to have a common guidelines for behavior towards everybody, uh, a level playing field, and undo the injustices of the past as best we can, right? So that's what we're looking for. Yeah. I'm I'm glad I spoke to you about this because I didn't even realize that there were a lot of issues, you know? It's like, oh, I, I hear about them, but I'm not really sure what exactly they are. And mm-hmm. I'm glad that you, like, go, you touch base upon it because then it's like, wow, like, I didn't realize that there were so many issues, you know? But yes. I'm glad that, 
like my listeners will get to hear this and hopefully become allies themselves and try to help your community as well absolutely and and not just my community but uh, all communities there's there are resources there's a hashtag laying back uh, certainly people can uh, go online and find out a lot of information uh, about what the issues are for Indian people by just googling that you know a couple of search words you know about the taking of water from Indian people or taking of land from Indian people or food deserts on the reservations as you say or Dakota access pipeline and you know they can open up a whole uh, whole world of uh, oh now I'm understanding what needs to be done so that we're all being treated fairly in the United States yeah. so I was really glad that you invited me to participate in the podcast really uh, encourage uh, your readers to you know do some research and, and get involved and I uh, look forward to that and really appreciate your having me on today yeah of course i want to thank you for being on here and for your expertise and making me aware of these issues thank you very much and have a great day yeah you too bye thank you again for listening if you like this episode please share it with someone who will like it too and please rate review and follow this podcast oh and don't forget to follow us on instagram at the what even is podcast so you can tell us a topic that makes you wonder what even is that